Hello and welcome to Inside Scoop Live. I'm Sherry Hoyt and I'm your host. Today I'm talking with Steve Bassett, author of Father Divine's Bikes, a story that paints a gangster war, three murders, a gun-toting paperboy, and the numbers racket into a dark mosaic that exposes the underbelly of 1945 Newark. Two altar boys are seduced into this corrupt world from which there is little hope of escape, and they fail to imagine the tragic fate that awaits them. Before we get started, let's learn a little bit more about Steve. Steve Bassett was born, raised, and educated in New Jersey, and although far removed during a career as a multiple award-winning journalist, he has always been proud of the sobriquet Jersey Guy. He has written for several publications, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning Salt Lake Tribune. He's also worked for the Associated Press, where his exposés gained national recognition, and CBS Television News in Los Angeles, earning three Emmy Awards for his investigative documentaries. His book, Golden Ghetto, How the Americans and French Fell In and Out of Love During the Cold War, was published in 2013. Father Divine's Bikes is his first work of fiction. For more information about Steve Bassett and his work, visit his website at stevebassettworld.com. Well, hi, Steve. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Uh, thank you, Sherry. Nice to meet you, too. And uh, let's uh, see what we have to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. We have a lot to talk about today. So uh, why don't we get started? Uh, tell us a little bit about your book, Father Divine's Bikes. Uh, yes, it's basically about two kids, two white altar boys in a uh, an inner city area, in this case, Newark, Newark, New Jersey, that is slowly... Uh, basically denigrating into a ghetto slum area and they uh, are looking for ways that they can meet what is happening around them in a positive way and of course if you're in an inner city slum area the positive way is always how can we make some money Mm. so eventually after exploring legit ways they hook up with some bookies and they become numbers runners and that's where the story basically hinges so this is your fiction debut you've also won several awards for this title what was it like writing your first fiction book well this was a very much an experiment uh, after 35 years as a journalist and of course people will tell you that if you're a journalist you've been writing fiction anyway <laughs> and <laughs> so but, but this is my first attempt, and I didn't know whether I would be good at it or not. So uh, it took about three to three and a half years with editing, rewriting, rearranging, uh, everything necessary that goes into a completed novel. Mm-hmm. And I had never done this before. Uh, this is compounded by the fact that I am legally blind. I need a great deal of help from magnification devices, from voice and visual prompts on the computer. Mm. And I have an assistant who does not live in the same state, but in California. And we do uh, author dictation bit on a uh, device called Log Me In, and then we go to Skype. Oh. So it's, it's very complicated for me to write. So it takes longer. But I also at this point would like to just throw out a suggestion to any uh, handicapped or impaired uh, person, either sight or any other misfortune that they might have. And if they have any dream at all about becoming a writer, but they're discouraged because of, of who they are and what is happening to them, either physically or as far as their sight is concerned, uh, take hope, because that's where I was when I started. 
after 35 years pounding a typewriter, I could barely see the keys, but damn it, I just can't be retired. And that's when I decided to write. And my first book, uh, Father Divine Spikes, was met with really overwhelming positive reaction. I won what is considered the real big one as far as digital books is concerned. This would be uh, the fifth annual New Apple Award for General Fiction, which is their largest category. Mm. I understand they have thousands of entrees. So I was the standalone winner uh, in that. And then I was runner-up in both the American uh, and the International Book Festival for uh, general fiction and genre fiction. So here's something, uh, you know, completely out of the starting blocks, and I end up with three surprise awards. Yeah, that's amazing. That That's a pretty impressive debut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. I, I feel like you've taken that whole writer's block theory, or, or excuse rather, and just kind of thrown it out the window with all that you've overcome to get your book out. I don't want to hear anybody saying they have writer's block anymore, basically. <laughs> well, I never believed in it. And of course, my career spanned uh, three newspapers, a healthy stint with the Associated Press, the AP, and then uh, television news. And when you are in these specific deadline demand uh, occupations, and, and, and I think I should define them as three different areas of mm-hmm. the media, uh, newspapers, wire service, and broadcast, they all have different demands, but the one demand they all make is deadline. And you can't have anything uh, even remotely resembling the so-called writer's block or you're out of work and you're on the street. Ah. So I never believed in writer's block. Yeah, yeah. So what inspired you to write this story? Well, basically the riot that occurred in Newark, a very deadly one, 23 people, some say 26, uh, but comfortably over 20 people were killed in a three-day riot in 1967. Mm. And the central focus for the riot was the area of Newark where I was born and raised very crime-ridden. It was a imploding area at the wave of the second great migration of blacks into the northeast, into the industrial areas to get better jobs. Mm -hmm. And when a riot occurred at that time, I was uh, no longer living in New Jersey. I had become an itinerant newsman working my way across the country, which is a story in itself. But I went back to New York for some reason I was called back to the Associated Press World Desk in New York City and I had time on my hands. I got a rental car and this was considerably after uh, the 67 riots Mm -hmm. and I drove back to my old neighborhood and I couldn't believe it still was uh, desolate, a scene of desolation. For instance, like the two movie theaters that I remember as a kid, they weren't even there, they had disappeared completely destroyed the Savoy Theater and the Essex Theater. And I said, what the hell happened here? Where, how could it happen? This was a fairly prosperous black shopping area, very similar to the Crenshaw region in Watts, where they had a, a riot. And so I started thinking that right after the Second World War, things were happening, but people were losing track of what was happening around them because of the euphoria of the victory. Everybody was so happy they were ignoring things like redlining, which was backed very strongly by the Federal Housing Authority, that cut off areas of the city 
that as being undesirable either to own property or to rent space. Mm-hmm. And my neighborhood was a redlined area. What had happened is it was well on its way to becoming a slum. Mm. And so even though your book takes place like a couple of decades before that happened, the, the tensions were already starting, right? Exactly. That's, that's exactly my point and why I decided to write the trilogy, which I call the Passaic River Trilogy. Yeah. And this is the first book of the trilogy. And what it does is what it was that gripped these people, my family being among the so-called these people. And it wasn't really any inner hatred of the black migration and the imploding neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It was fear. It was fear of the unknown. And they didn't know how to act and how to react. They saw what was happening. For instance, a, a fairly compact area around the street in which we were living, you could see what is endemic with poverty. That is street crime. So we had numbers runners. We had street prostitution. You had breaking and entering, cars being boosted, uh, radios being stripped from cars, uh, store break-ins. These things are all endemic with street-level poverty. And I saw that as, but nothing was being done about it Mm. because, my God, we are the greatest country in the world. We were the pivotal point for winning the Second World War only a year earlier. And they just ignored what was going on around them. When you're a returning vet, in this case, we'll say a black veteran, maybe even a Purple Heart recipient, and you're living in a fire trap tenement after serving your country, and you have to be asking yourself the question, why the hell did we fight this war? Right. Nothing changed. So that's why I decided that this would be the central focus of my first book. Yeah. So did you know when you started writing your first book that you were going to write a trilogy? Yeah. The second book I just completed, and it's called Payback, Tales of Love, Hate, and Revenge. And it's a chronological trilogy. Father Divine's Bike is the end of 1945. Uh, Payback is 1946, where everything is settled in, and people are looking at what's happening around them, and they are not happy with it at all. Mm. And we, we get more into the uh, what is affecting the people And I do touch on redlining, where in 1946, 50% of the city of Newark was redlined, Mm. which means undesirable living. And uh, when an area is redlined, almost automatically, you see very few grocery stores, drug stores, any kind of social help that people ordinarily have in a neighborhood. So that's where I touch very, very strongly. And of course, it's just three murders in it. And there's revenge for uh, the Nazi extermination camps in Europe. And also a heartfelt revenge about the German Bund, which was a, a very, very large, very powerful group that filled Madison Square Garden with uh, over 18,000 people who were Hitler lovers. Mm. And so all of this comes into play in a second book. Boy, that sounds awfully familiar with what's going on um, in today's times. Yeah, That's exactly a pivotal motivation that I had uh, for payback, is that what we're seeing in the United States with the white, hate-filled skinheads and who they vote for, what they're looking for from their government, uh, the police 
interaction with people of color that happens not only on the northeast coast, where Newark, of course, sits right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the Atlantic State, New Jersey, but it's happening all over the country. You can go anywhere from El Paso, Texas, to the upper Midwest in Wisconsin, to uh, California, and then, of course, back to the East Coast. And you have to ask yourself the question, has anything really changed or is it changing? Right. Now, I know through your research that uh, you've discovered that this, well, that America's urban history has rarely been covered, either in fiction or nonfiction. And uh, why do you suppose that is? Well, first of all, people have forgotten about it. That was also another prime motivation for me. Hmm. I said, what really has been written about urban inner city areas in a period immediately after the Second World War? This is before the uh, almost like uh, cataclysmic changes that took place uh, during the golden years of the 50s into the mid-60s where the economy was bursting, everybody had a job, everybody was happy. But that one period right after the war uh, is rarely touched upon. In fact, one critic who read the book uh, hit it. He said, I like the book because it was rare. And they said it was rare because he talked about people who are rarely touched upon. So I really appreciated that, that critic's reaction, that I was resurrecting people who are hardly ever addressed at that stage in our, our history. After all, it's over 70 years ago. Yeah, it's it's a little forgotten, like a little forgotten segment, a little forgotten era. And I mean, it's tragic, really, because you think um, there was so much prosperity during wartime, which is ironic. And then, you know, the war ends and everything starts falling apart. Yes, Newark really profited from the war. Uh, they had shipbuilding in the area. Uh, the Ronson cigarette lighter people completely converted to munitions manufacturer. Mm. The Prudential Insurance Company, which is, I think, still remains the largest insurance company in the United States, their office buildings were converted into uh, support organizations. The, the alphabet soup that arose during the war of all of the different organizations that were formed and, and provided work, especially for women who basically took over jobs that men had and men controlled rigidly, leaving very, very little uh, uh, room for women to intrude. And, and that's the way they looked at as intrusions. And then lo and behold, found out that the women who took over the jobs ended up doing as good, if not a better job, than the men who had the jobs before them, especially in a lot of the physical areas where physical dexterity was involved. Hence the phrase, Rosie the Riveter. Mm -hmm. And anyone can Google or or research uh, the phrase, Rosie the Riveter, and they'll see a myriad uh, number of posters that resurrected during the war showing muscular women uh, with uh, rivet guns in their hands and other implements, heavy-duty workers implements and the phrase we can do it and that's that's what my third book is going to be about oh that's exciting i love that that piece of history that you know when women started having jobs and and what a cultural adjustment it was for everyone and i think that is so interesting oh i'm happy to hear that yeah well and i believe 
when people talk about well, women's lib, and they, they easily identify it with the 1960s and the 1970s with now and other organizations of that ilk. Mm-hmm. But I believe that women's lib began in the Second World War. In fact, I'm convinced that it did. Yeah. In fact, it was a muscular type of liberalism. It was out there basically flexing its muscle for everybody to see. Yeah, and I imagine uh, women found it hard to go back to just cleaning their houses after that, you know? Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So now tell us a little bit about the namesake of your book. Uh, who is Father Divine, and how did you come up with the idea to use him in your story? Well, Father Divine, you either loved him or hated him. He had a, a movement that actually transcended the United States, which was called the International uh, Peace Movement. Mm-hmm. And he founded an organization that didn't wait for followers to die to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. His that message is that you can find heaven here on earth if you just look for it and uh, work hard enough for it. And uh, the manifestation of this in the area where I lived in Newark is they had peace barbershops where you could get a good haircut for a dime. You could go to a peace restaurant and get a good wholesome meal for 10 to 15 cents. They had what would be called uh, hostels now, but they were converted either warehouses or old abandoned hotels that he turned into uh, 25 cents a night uh, hotels. Mm. And, and they had something that a lot of these people never had before. There was hot and cold running water, clean linen, and rigid separation of men and women so there was no outside criticism that he was basically putting together, you know, barely disguised houses of prostitution. So he did a lot. And I have a priest in the book recommending that the younger priest, who was his curate in this particular parish, he said, look, we're promising our followers, Catholic followers we're talking, an everlasting peace in the hereafter. Father Divine took it one step closer to reality. I'm giving you heaven here on earth if you only go out there and work for it. And this is really a very interesting point about Father Divine. He was very short, just hardly over five foot. He had a bald head. And pictures you see of him is, uh, a, a, you know, a shiny dome. Yeah. And, and piercing eyes, piercing eyes. And uh, he had a police record. He was a, a arrested. He did have a rather checkered career, changed his name a couple times, and uh, born in Baltimore, and uh, born and raised there. And uh, out in uh, Long Island, uh, they, they filed charges against him because his followers are having too good a time. <laughs> he would throw banquets with thousands, and at one time it was counted that 3,000 people from all over the East Coast came to these weekends that he would have. And of course he rode around in a, a Cadillac convertible, which offended an awful lot of racists as well. Mm-hmm. So they had to get him. So they had trumped up charges. And um, a very interesting anecdote with Father Divine, when he was arrested in Long Island, uh, and he had to pay a fine uh, in the thousands, and he, uh, in effect, basically reached into his pocket and peeled off the money and gave it to the bailiff. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! I would love to learn more about him. He just sounds fascinating, and I actually I really enjoyed how you used him in the book. Um, he was kind of like a metaphor. 
He, yeah. he was a metaphor who was used by three bookies who wheedled their way into the confidence of his movement mm. and opened up a barbershop and used the Peace Barbershop as a cover for their bookie operation. They ran a numbers parlor in the back room and they had telephones in their uh, three-chair barbershop in front. And so consequently, it was a very, very easy way to run book. And so a person could come in ostensibly for a haircut. Meantime, he slips a, a buck, two bucks to the barber who, when after the haircut is done, he walks over to the telephone and places the bet for him. <laughs> I love that. That's such a great story. I'm going to have to read it again. <laughs> uh, and, you know, for me, the driving force behind your book is your characters. I mean, to me, you actually painted portraits of each of your characters when you were telling their backstory. And I love character-driven books. And so I'm always curious about how an author develops their characters. So how how did you develop your characters? Well, of course, a lot of them are people that I met, uh-huh. either as a child or as a working journalist. Uh, well, I'll take one that doesn't seem to fit. We take the boy Billy, who comes from a well-to-do family and lives in a Victorian house with his family while the father is overseas as an engineering officer in the Pacific. And I paint the portrait of him trying to fit in with the gang, the white gang, who worked out of a candy store, a confectionery store, and how he knew that he would always be an outsider, and as did the priest who was the curate in that particular parish. This was not his territory. He was from another part of the state, and how they try to mesh and they, ne- they never really succeed, although Billy comes very close. Mm. So they put him through the test. And the test that they had for him, they manufactured imaginary goals that everybody who wanted to be accepted by them had to fulfill in order to su- sit down in the same booth in a candy store and share a soda. <laughs> and so they sent him out to, to shoplift a watermelon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And nobody had ever done that before. And he said, well, what the hell, I'm going to give it a shot. And he actually did it. And it took everybody by surprise. <laughs> and here he is sitting on a, the, the steps of a, an apartment house with a watermelon, sort of like a little pet puppy in his lap. Yeah. And, he's, and, and he's saying, come on over, come on, get your Boy Scout knife out and we'll start slicing it up. And another character who was part of the gang, and this was based on a singer, who became one of the top bebop singers in the United States. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the name uh, Sarah Vaughan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Sarah Vaughan was from that neighborhood, and they called her sassy because she swore like a sailor. I mean, getting into a prolonged conversation with her was like, you know, sitting in a bar with a bunch of guys <laughs> and uh, with no holes barred as far as the slang, uh, the put-downs, the profanity. So I invented a girl, a woman, who was a coalescing force with the other members, and I gave her the name Profanity Pump <laughs> because she was because she was pumping out profanity all the time, and everybody loved her. Yeah, everyone loved her, and so that was somebody based on a character who was alive, well, and had a reputation. And as far as other characters, 
there is a lot of autobiography. I was a third generation kid with East European background. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, has anybody actually looked at the generational aspect of what it was like among these undereducated blue collar workers who were now being squeezed on how they competed and looked at them from the point of view of generations. So I have the Bansick family in a book, which has the first generation of the old Montenegrin warrior who fought the Turks in Europe. He is sponsored by the commies to come over. Then he marries and there's the second generation and that leads to the father for Joey Bansick, who was the main character in the mm-hmm. book in many ways. So that's the second generation. Then you have Joey Bansick, who migrates into the numbers racket with a tragic ending. So I, I take a family through three generations very, very concisely as to what it meant to live in fear, fear of the unknown, fear of where your next job was going to come from, and where even a seemingly minor injury could cause you to lose your job and you're out on the street wondering where the next meal is coming from. Yeah, and you can actually feel that while reading, or I could anyway, um, and, and that's why I love the way you, you rolled out your characters. Yeah, And, of course, that's where the rent collectors came in, where the slumlords came in, started dividing and subdividing apartments, railroad apartments, where you had one railroad apartment that ran from front to back of a rickety old tenement. They chopped it in half and made it into two, and both apartments would have to share the same bathroom. So uh, that's part of the Bansick story as well. Yeah, I loved all of your characters. They're just amazing to me. And Profanity, I was wondering, actually, if you based her off of a person you knew, because I couldn't imagine (laughs) meeting anyone like that. Yes. Well, you know, profanity pump, she she had the proverbial heart of gold. And it turns out that secretively, she has been taking some of her uh, very meager allowance and what she was able to, I call, uh, sliding out of her father's wallet and sliding out of her mother's purse. In other words, basically, you know, taking some coin and some bills along with her allowance and using that to the benefit where she was supplied used shoes to another character in a book called 810. And 810 is uh, a, a character who could be aged anywhere from 25 to 45 years old. <laughs> Imbecilic, uh, probably had the intelligence of possibly a moron. But one of the jobs that he had in order to keep body and soul together, he sold newspapers at a stand outside of the downtown burlesque which existed, which, of course, I went to when I was a kid, sneaking in when, when I was 18 years old. <laughs> the Empire Burlesque was some, was a rite of passage. You had to go there. Oh, okay. And, uh, and what they did, that when the shows changed every week, the 8x10 uh, glossies that they had behind glass depicting whoever the headliners were for that week were taken down and new ones were put in. So they would give him the glossies. Oh. And so he would take these like they were holy script and take them to the candy store where the kids hung out. And he would show them, now here's another one. Here's (laughs) another one. You never saw this one before. So you're talking about 12, 13, 14-year-old kids looking at glossy of burlesque strippers. And so he 
became embedded into this subculture that made room for people like him. Mm-hmm. And so I had to make room for him in a book. Yeah. These kids really had to grow up fast, didn't they? Yeah, well, where I show where two of the characters in a book, uh, basically ancillary characters, where they actually go out and uh, have sex for the first time, I mean real sex, and they do it with a teenage prostitute. Mm. And it cost them five bucks each that they were saving up for months because they didn't have much money. And I show them walking up the back stairs of a condemned tenant where the young prostitute and her prostitute mother lived up on a top floor and have them climbing up the stairs and making contact, which is going to be their their first sexual uh, liaison. And this is witnessed by Billy, the rich kid, lived in a Victorian house, and how he only wished that he was up there with him because he easily had enough money to do it. Yeah. These are the little stories that wind themselves throughout the book to make a big story. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Now, now, how do you go from working with your characters every day to now your book's done, now what? Being an author, writing the book is just part of your job, and then you've got to market it and all that stuff. And What do you enjoy most about the whole process? Well, the marketing part of it I hated. Yeah. Uh, and as an indie author, I had to go out shopping because – as I had mentioned earlier in the interview, this was like a shot in the dark for me. Mm-hmm. I had never done fiction before. And I know this sounds crazy. I didn't know whether the book was going to sell, but I had to get this book off my chest. Mm-hmm. I had to do that, find out if I could write. And then also with the message that I thought I had, that I had to convey to readers, that we are not living in a historical vacuum now in the 21st century, that a lot of what we are experiencing now and the almost cross-the-board hatred uh, that's being experienced from coast to coast, it had to start someplace. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's start here, 1945, with a story that's going to be believable, with characters who are believable, which the readers can identify with. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you've done a great job uh, marketing your book. Do you think your background in uh, journalism in that field has uh, helped you with your marketing and promotional efforts? Oh, yeah. When I was a news executive producer in Los Angeles, one of the things that became uh, almost like a factor of life that couldn't be ignored is that PR people, uh, of course, we call them flax, would come and push their product. Uh, try to get some airtime with the television station. Every once in a while, uh, you would find one that you had some respect for, but generally you didn't have respect for them because you knew that they would try to sell anything they could just to get an image on Mm -hmm. the screen. So I had a built-in, I wouldn't say animosity, but uh, a reluctance to get involved in marketing because I had kind of a sour taste in my mouth from my experience as a journalist. Yeah. So that was hard. Uh, and I know this sounds like, you know, incongruous as hell when I said that with a lot of Divine's Bike, I wanted the book and the message to get out there. And secondarily was whether I was going to make a buck on it. I wanted my message out there and, and I wanted to find out if 
readers, critics, and reviewers felt that I could write. Mm -hmm. So it was basically a running-in-place experiment for me. And as we mentioned earlier, I came away with three awards and with a very, very high uh, rating both on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I think 4.6 in one and 4.8 in the other. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, uh, so I'm gratified. Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned the best reason to write a book is to get your story out there. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. If for nothing else, it keeps me occupied. <laughs> keeps me out of trouble. Keeps you out of trouble. And, uh, so I'm going to make sure that I have what I feel are the necessary pieces in place for the second book of the trilogy, Payback, before I start on the third book, which we went into uh, briefly earlier in the interview, yeah. and uh, centered on the phrase I'm going to be using, and I think it really fits for that era, is muscular feminism. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you like to do outside of writing? My wife and I were lucky during a time when the exchange rate was unbelievably favorable for the American dollar. Uh, we bought a small property in central France, mm. and it's about a uh, little over 200 miles south, southwest of Paris in a real rural, almost a backwater area. In fact, it is a very provincial backwater area of France called Berry, and uh we uh, stumbled on it through a mutual friend, a, uh, a house that is uh, just about 600 years old. Oh, my gosh. And, in other words, it predates our country by about three centuries. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. So how often do yeah, you go to go France? Over at, to get out of New Mexico's heat, we go over every summer for three months. We leave about the first week in June. And we come back uh, the first week in September. So we're out of uh, New Mexico during the heat, which is incessant. It, it doesn't change at all. Yeah. And uh, so we're, we're over there. And, uh, of course, when we're there, we developed a, uh, an ever-expanding uh, group of friends who look after our property when we're not there because we're gone roughly around nine months out of the year. They look after it uh, and, in fact, do an awful lot of the upkeep outside. Uh, so we uh, there's that. And uh, and also uh, here at our property here in New Mexico, it's a continuous uh, wake up in the morning, what has to be fixed today type of property. Oh. So I'm kept busy here too. Yeah, that's and, nice. and And then the writing, I devote three days a week to writing. Mm-hmm. Where, as I mentioned before, I have an assistant who's in California. We connect through Skype, and she basically is my computer. I tell her what has to be done, what kind of research we we're going to be doing today, uh, and what kind of messages we have to get out. So there's three days a week that I'm kept busy there. So everything I'm doing now is putting together the research foundation for the third book of the trilogy. That's amazing. How long have you two been working together like Ten that? Ten years. Ten years. Okay. Yeah, wow. right after uh, right after I started, very reluctantly at first, realizing that uh, I, I was going to need help. And and if I could put in a plug, I don't know if you could work it in. Sure. But, uh, well, you... the VA has been my salvation. They, four times, they flew me in from Albuquerque to one of 13 centers they have for the visually impaired or blind veterans. 
they taught me computer skills, various voice activated uh, systems that I could use to work the computer. They supplied me with magnificent magnification devices that make it possible for me with my very limited eyesight to still read. And without that, I could not have taken step one, which would be the hiring of Christine, who is my assistant. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so if I can put in a big plug for the VA and to veterans, who is, regardless of what their handicap is, but particularly if they're sight impaired or blind, and if they ever had any dreams about writing, talking about their experience, because every veteran has a book in them, I believe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And these VA uh, facilities, and as I say, there's 13 of them strategically located across the United States. They've got to find out through their local VA hospital how to get enrolled, and they'll come out with a, a completely new viewpoint of the life that's ahead that's facing them. Mm -hmm. And In fact, a very nice factor is that when you go in for this program, they pay to have your wife fly out. Oh, nice. And where she can experience what is going on. And what they do, they outfit the spouse with a pair of glasses that they, for instance, I have no sight in my left eye at all. They fog up the lens so she can't see. Darlene could not see out of the left end. And then really compressed the area that I still had sight in the uh, right eye, which is the only thing I'm using right now. So she could actually see what it is to experience what I was experiencing. So that when I say, well, could you help me find this? Rather than her losing patience with me, and of course, that, that's not hard to do when you, you're dealing with a sight-impaired person. Mm. She is wearing a pair of glasses for three days that is looking at the world through the same eyes as mine. That is amazing. That must make all the difference in the world. That is so important because, I mean, it's first-hand experience. And do you, do you think a lot of the vets know about, about no. these? Yeah. I had macular degeneration for, uh, oh, oh, for a lot of figure, three or four years going back and forth to the ophthalmologist at the VA hospital here in Albuquerque. And it wasn't until about the fourth year that I even knew that there was an office in the building that was the liaison between these centers and the hospital. Mm. So I was completely in the dark until just by happenstance, uh, the ophthalmologist, very good, he saved what remains of my eyesight for me but with laser surgery. Mm. And he said, did you ever meet Bruce down the hall? I said, who was Bruce down the hall? Well, he's the guy that can probably open up some doors for you. So I went, had the meeting. A week later, uh, I was on a plane to Tucson for my first session with the therapist there. Wow. How does one get the message out to vets? Yeah, well, that's it. Hopefully, uh, the fact that I'm succeeding mm -hmm. with the help that the VA has given me is one way of getting the message out. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Now I have to ask, um, what is it that you most hope people take away from reading Father Divine's Bikes? If people could come away from the book absorbing uh, a good portion of the message in a book, that I couldn't ask for more than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
Well, Steve, it's really been a pleasure talking to you today, and I enjoyed so much learning about you and your work and Father Divine's Bikes. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed myself this morning. To our listeners, thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Steve Bassett, author of Father Divine's Bikes. For more information about Steve and his work, visit his website at stevebassettworld.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com. 